Thank you to you, our readers. Nope. <laughs> our auditory nope. reader. <laughs> Thanks for reading us. Thank you for audibly. I am nicely read. <laughs> Welcome to the Poet Salon, a podcast where we talk to poets over a drink we've prepared especially for them. I'm Gabrielle Bates. I'm Duji Tahat. And I'm Luther Hughes. This week, we're talking with the incredible poet and person, Jeffrey Davis. Jeffrey Davis is the author of Night Angler, winner of the 2018 James Laughlin Award from the Academy of American Poets, and Revising the Storm, winner of the 2013 A. Poulin Jr. Poetry Prize. He has received fellowships from Breadloaf, Cave Canem, the National Endowment for the Arts, the Vermont Studio Center, and the Whiting Foundation. A native of the Pacific Northwest, he currently lives with his family in Fayetteville, Arkansas, where he teaches at the University of Arkansas. He also teaches at the Rainier Writing Workshop and serves as poetry editor for Iron Horse Literary Review. But before we get into that conversation, we have a question from the audience to answer. Family Matters says, so I wrote a poem and everyone I've shown it to says it's really strong. I'd like to publish it, but my dad will be devastated if he sees it. What do you think I should do? Has anybody ever asked permission from their family to write poems about them or publish poems about them? Man, why you gotta call me out like that? <laughs> oh, she? No, I, not necessarily i've not necess i haven't necessarily asked for permission i have given copies of my poems before they've been published mm. just saying like this is a poem i've written it's like gonna make its way into the world probably and then that's it i think i've invited the door for conversation or i've invited the door <laughs> brought them to Come the on door, in door. <laughs> open the door show them right the i show them, them to the door for a conversation should they wish to enter it I'm happy mm -hmm. to entertain. How did that go? Um, I have not yet been taken up on it. Oh. Interesting. Was it yeah. just silence? No. Um, no. We had an acknowledgement that those poems existed, like a semi-teary acknowledgement that the poems mm -hmm. existed, and then, and then that was it. Like, there wasn't really, like, a navigating. There wasn't, like, a no, please don't publish it. Mm-hmm. I think so. I asked my father um, if I could like publish a book about his father. Um, this only happened because I was in a, a workshop um, and the teacher was talking about uh, permission and how it seems almost violent not to uh, get that kind of permission to tell people's stories. I mean, so I felt really guilty because I've been writing about my, my father for years. And so I was like, well, I guess I should. Just tell him, like, oh, you know, I'm thinking about publishing a book about, you know, your father and, you know, um, the disease that he had and you know, that you have at A, B, and C. And he was, he loved it. He was like, oh my gosh, I would love that. And, mm -hmm. you know, let me know when you, you know, publish it and A, B, and C. And I was like, oh, okay, well, now I feel, I feel obligated to do this thing, right? And so I think, <laughs> but I have, I would never even thought to ask that permission if somebody didn't tell me or suggest, like, the violence behind. Uh, not bringing it to at least their attention that they're being written about 
I think when it comes to memoir too, I think when it comes to memoir, um, I was in a memoir class or the 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 study of the essay um, <laughs> in grad school, and they were talking about like how it's important to make sure people you're writing about um, it's okay with using their actual name, or if they're not, how to then. Um, disguise uh quote-unquote erase or protect their their being Mm. and so i think ever since that class i've been thinking about how to go about talking about people who kind of um are implicated in my poems but then also thinking about well thinking about my experience versus their story um Mm. and how i can tell how i felt about uh, you know, being in their their presence versus talking about their stories, and I think that's more important than the idea of documenting people's stories. If I'm being super honest with myself, I think my approach to this topic so far has been pretty cowardly. Honestly, mm. I've just been publishing poems, and then they're out in the world, and I know that family will see them. You know, we we have a good relationship. They follow me on social media. They know when I publish things. And I just kind of put it in their hands that way. And I think I've justified it to myself in a lot of ways by really harping on the distance between the self and the speaker in a poem. Mm-hmm. Uh, Edgar Kuntz has a really great new essay up on LitHub that's a lot about um, just the negotiation of family truth versus poetic truth and and all of these things. So so in my head, I'm like, you know, the poem is its own reality. It's yeah. fiction in totally. many ways. It's a, a facet of the truth that's not maybe necessarily exactly autobiographical truth. And then therefore, somehow that releases me from having to get permission to publish it ahead of time, mm-hmm. which I am not bought into that that's the best way to go about it. But I think that's how I've operated so far. Yeah. And I mean, I think there's also a distinction too, between like single poems in random places and like a book length project. Right. Right. Where, and like your, even your own as a poet and writer, like as your role in making sure that that piece of art gets received is different. Right. Mm -hmm. Like if you are just sort of one among many in a journal, then that's kind of like, you know, whatever. But if you have a book and you're like just hawking the book, like you're just trying to sell the shit out of your book and like it hinges on a lot of familial relationships, I think it does. I mean, it asks, it begs a different question, Mm -hmm. right? It begs a different kind of treatment, um, which I'm really interested in. I interviewed Jose Olivares and he said one of the like really more interesting things because obviously I write about family a lot and I think about this question and we ask Jeffrey Davis this question later. (laughs) But he said you know, that in terms of confronting his own experience against his family history, that the only way he could sort of like ethically do it is by writing as a means to get closer to them as a means to like fill out their story. What, what he understood about the facts and like give it more dimensions. Um, I mean, that is obviously unique to, I think that is unique to, I'm not even really sure how to take it. I mean, I guess like that is applicable to all relationships. I guess my curiosity is around like, you know, I write about my father a lot and I don't have a great relationship with him. Mm-hmm. Like, so how, how do you then either like, how do you seek permission without again, when like that person is more a mental projection more than anything mm-hmm. in my own like life. I think it's important to also think about 
how people respond to your poems, right? And then having the vulnerability to even put it out in the world, right? Mm. So, so for me, when I so when I was younger, I had a poem about about being homosexual, about being gay. I haven't come out to my father yet at that point, so it was just out in the world. Wow. But then my sister had read the poem and told my father that I was gay, and so Ooh. he found out I was gay through a poem that I put on a blog that I wrote that I wrote years before um, when he found out, and so. The application, right? The idea of like being kind of interrupted in that space. And then also, I was at work. He called me, I was on at work. He was like, Hey, I read the poem that your sister had told me about. And he was like, No, I love you. And I was like, It's a gay Aww. poem, right? And so, but then again, like having the to put out that sort of vulnerability into the world and then like not even expecting him to read anything because like my parents mm-hmm. are not people who read poems or in that world of literature at all. And so, in my mind, I was just, you know, just kind of like ranting a certain way right yeah. but then i realized oh poems do kind of have a certain kind of power to them that you may not understand or even realize that until they're out in the world mm. right and that exposure i kind of felt like i was like kind of displayed open like fuck mm. like oh i want to do this on a different way than what you read it as right yeah. and so it's i think poetry does more than what we think it does mm. yeah i have a friend uh Svetlana Tertskaya, who would say you just have to write as if all these family members are already dead and you just have to publish it hmm. and you just have to do it. Um, I'm, I don't know if I necessarily agree, but she, um, I think about that a lot uh, in regards to this topic because she's just like very, very yeah. straightforward about it. Yeah. And I like that a lot. I, I, I'm really, I, I'm really interested in actually to, to your point, Luther, like and I think that, that that's a coping mechanism, Gabby, like as a way to deal with the question is like, how do you take care of yourself, right? Mm-hmm. There's like an unintended consequence of like making yourself vulnerable, right? Whether it's like writing, like rewriting your trauma and like then then exposing that relationship and therefore like mm-hmm. maybe reliving that in a way that you hadn't anticipated. And I think like at the end of the day, maybe the question becomes too like, how do you how do you write about a relationship that also takes care of you, mm. right? Without harming yourself as much. Cause I think the concern in this question is like without harming your family member. Right. But I mm-hmm. think there are ways in which like you can harm yourself if you don't necessarily think through it all the way. I think the question that we're really getting at is the idea of risk and vulnerability and what the risk is to be as vulnerable as you possibly can without compromising relationships at all um i always think about like i've been showing my boyfriend a lot of poems i've written about exes and like how that was kind of fraught and in my mind like damn i probably shouldn't do that because it it might it might cause a little riff in how he then sees us and then also how i perceive emotionally mm. but there's something in um, the vulnerability that you're allowing yourself I'm, i am flawed and my experiences make up who i am and even when we're talking about like family members and like fathers mothers sister brothers a b and c there's something in that that shows you i have a flawed experience and i'm only coping with it the best way i can and that might just be to be vulnerable and if it hurts you and harms you i do apologize for that and here I, and receiving apology i can then move on past that i think that's important as well yeah yeah i think you're saying too like you have to be willing to stand by it Right. right. Like you have to be like what you're doing is that you are, st- if, if you don't necessarily get the explicit like permission, mm-hmm. like at, from jump, then at least be willing to stand there and like have the conversation. Right. Mm. Which is, that's a risk, right? Like that's right. A, that's the, that's the big risk that you, you really do have to consider. I love so much what Jeffrey Davis had to say about these sorts of things. So I think we should 
jump over into that conversation now. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. So fishing. (laughs) Um, I think it's interesting because so when I grew up, I went fishing one time with my father um, and like my uncles and I hated it. Um, I was five years old too though. So maybe that's probably why. And also I thought dinosaurs existed. So I thought I was being attacked by dinosaurs a lot of the time. Um, But all that to say, um, talk to us about fishing, um, about about being in nature and uh, how that kind of more so informs your poetics and your aesthetics about poetry. Yeah, so um, I started fishing when I was like seven or eight, and my dad, uh, we were living in on Alaska, Washington. Do you know this? It's like south of here. Mm. Um, and we were in a sort of like take the addict out of the city um, housing situation, and like many addicts, he traded one obsession for the other, and so fishing was the thing he kind of just dove into and would bring us along in part because my mother didn't trust where he was going. So, um, but I, I, it didn't sort of color my experience of it, but it was this safe thing for him to obsess about. And so I was just finishing an essay not too long ago about, um, streams as sort of counter hearts to an otherwise compromised home space. And so it was where I could see him be obsessive and graceful at the same time. Um, and, and it's the thing, it's one of the long, longest standing loves that I have in my life is fishing. Mm-hmm. And it's a place where I go to be present in a way that I don't often get, where I'm just reading the water. Um, so it gives me a chance to practice that kind of singular focus, not looking too far behind, not too far ahead. Otherwise, things kind of fall apart, hook the trees or miss fish and stuff like that. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, we were talking about this earlier in the drive over here about meditation. Like it's a space where I get to be meditative. Um, yeah. Although I never write on the water, mm. <laughs> never. Well, that was true up until Vermont Studio Center, which has this beautiful stream that runs through it. And it was a moment where, like, that's often what I'll say in a casual way. Like, this is where I go to be present. And I was riding on the river. In fact, working in this essay, I was just mention, mentioning, and um, and suddenly it was like I realized being present isn't always like this calm, peaceful, zen thing. It was like very present and conscious about some psychic stuff that I had sort of been waiting to address, I guess. And so, mm. and, and the, so the studio's there on the river. So I'm looking at the river, I'm writing about the river, I'm sitting on the river. And then me and the river had this like day. And it's one of the poems that's in the middle of this book. I love how you just said you were reading the water. Mm. Um, and just the idea of reading something that is not a traditional text. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, it's a common saying in fishing, like read the water to kind of, you know, there's fish hold in certain water and you have to read in the surface in particular because you can't really see what's going underneath. And the more you fish, the more reps you get, you can see, you know, that, you know, eddies, for example, are a place where fish will sort of hold up softer water, um, places where they can be safe and also close to food. And so you kind of have to read, you know, depth, speed, is there shade, is there structure? Um, and so yeah, it's a common, beautiful phrase that I love to anglers sort of like I read the water. So whenever I meet someone who, who fishes and say they're not a writer or a poet, I'm like, bullshit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I, I've seen you read yes. water. I've seen you read water. Uh, yeah. uh, uh. Yes. 
for the On Failure series for Poetry Northwest, which is curated by our dear mutual friend, Keisha Kuypers, you wrote about the title poem for your first book, yeah. Revising the Storm. And I love that essay oh, thank you. so much. And just the way you categorize the beauty in the failure of poetry um, and how you see that working. And I was hoping you would just talk a little bit about that idea of poetry as this beautiful failure as you see it. And I don't know if your thoughts have changed on that topic since you wrote that piece or not. I'm trying to remember. I have this habit of not going back and reading prose. Of course. Yeah. (laughs) Because like when I'm, (laughs) when I'm in the middle of a sentence, uh, that I've already finished. Like usually I want to just pull out of it. So this is going to be from memory of, of writing that piece. Um, so I, if I remember right and feel free to jump in and, and collaborate on, on this. Um, <laughs> one of, one of the, one of the ways in which beauty of poetry for me works is not like I wanted that poem to be more beautiful than it ever could be. Mm-hmm. And so that's the failure is, the, the beauty of that poem was the idea that this poem could help me be closer to a, a relative that I was, I felt like I was losing and still feel like I'm losing. And so the question that I was asking myself is if this poem was meant to find my brother, to make him feel closer, um, and it didn't work, you know, then it's sort of confronting the, I mean, the failure of this thing to do something beautiful. And while I, appreciate the sort of uh the bar and the attempt that if i'm being honest it didn't work mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. he's as further as he's ever been yeah so um along those lines i'm curious you know obviously your book is so much about wrestling with the relationships in your family like moving forward and moving backwards um as someone who also writes a lot about family, I'm always sort of constantly obsessed with the question of like, how do you, like, what is the ethics of that? Yeah. Right. Like, especially, you know, add in the wrinkle of like certain relationships that are just sort of no longer there. Yeah. Um, and so you're wrestling with sort of a mental projection as much as, if not more so than a real person. Mm-hmm. Like, and then like once it's out in the world, like how do you negotiate that? Yeah. that's the right question um or um range of questions so when i was in college i published a bunch of poems in my literary magazine for college and and i chose one to show my mom i was like this is like a safe one it's i thought it was cute and and looking back like my read was wrong (laughs) um it was wrong and i mean i i the poem was still written written with an intention, but how safe I thought the interpretation was mm. was completely wrong. So my mom reads this poem, and she says, like, you know, I tried, and starts weeping. And I was like, what the fuck is going on? And then she shows my auntie, and my auntie reads it, and she's like, I, I get it, and starts, like, consoling my mom. And I'm like, so they pass it around to my family members. And, wow. and, I, and I did this on the beginning of a four-day camping trip, oh, which was rough. a bad idea. So through and through, like, I don't know what the so the what I was, was thinking. About. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, we ended up recover. You know, we're families had to deal with grief, so uh, it didn't. It didn't. That wasn't the only soundtrack of the camping mm-hmm. trip, but it made me not show my work to my family, and also maybe not publish for years. This is like you know, oh four, oh five, and I didn't start setting out until like oh eleven again. Oh eleven. Is that <laughs> I love it. Um, and and so 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 that happens. And, and my mom's the kind of person where if you're in her house, is hers. And so I was visiting from, 
from grad school and I woke up and I had been working on the manuscript on her computer. I'd emailed it to myself. This is before Dropbox <laughs> or before I had Dropbox. <laughs> and, and I woke up and she was like, uh, did you, is this your, your book? And my, oh. my heart dropped. And I was like, yeah. And she was like, I, I, you know, I read the whole thing. <gasps> and I was just like, oh. And, you know, and she said, she said something like, I told your father. I told him you were watching him and that you would tell this story. Mm. And then, and that was, that was relieving. But the next thing she said was infinitely more important. She said, and I wanted, I want to tell my story too. So mm. that any woman who goes through, I went through maybe has, um, a, a resource or a source to sort of confide in. And, and I mean, that's what we ought to be doing, telling stories, building images that compel people to speak and tell their own stories mm. rather than I was worried about silence and she didn't. Mm. Um, and the same thing happened with my brother. So after that, I didn't hear from anybody in my family about the book for two years, except for like, we're proud of you, you know, mm. but nothing about the poems. And so I sort of just assumed that either they didn't want to talk about it, you know? Um, and then my brother called me, I was in ADBP and I was walking around and he called me in tears. Mm. And at first I was like, what's going on? You know, and I got him to calm down and he just said, um, thank you for writing this book. He's like, I thought I was the only one walking around thinking about these things. Um, and that was it. That was the sort of the, the collaborative invitation that, that, that book and that I hope, um, my work continues to invite with my family, you know, not competing for who has the right version, mm -hmm. who, who, who gets to tell the version, but just prodding each other to be like, let's tell this story. Let's not sort of tiptoe within the myth of family. Like let's trust that the myth of family is pliable and resilient and that we can speak on these things that are hurting us, you know, and no one has to leave the room or the family. So. That was pretty brilliant. Um, <laughs> uh, relatedly, and Duji didn't ask this in particular, but I know in thinking about this conversation, we were all wondering about the particular ethics of writing about your children. Yeah. Uh, because that seems like, a very different dynamic somehow than writing about a brother or a parent. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's two things that I'm trying to grapple with. Um, and one of them is the reality that I had to start this conversation, I guess, period. Like I couldn't <laughs> wait until I knew when to talk to him about these things. Mm -hmm. And so I think about the book, one of the ways it's, it's, it's described, um, or I, or I've been describing it as a book length love letter to my son, you know, like I'm, fucking trying man i'm trying um and i can't wait for you to, for or for me to think you're ready before we have these conversations um and so i started this book when he was just born um and i'm talking i'm talking to um a version of him that's in and out of time that's not like when you're seven we have or because part's like i don't i don't know and i know I, and i i also know that I was on the end of stuff that my mom didn't even realize that I was aware of that. She was just telling the story. She, her and her father have a sort of, um, complicated relationship. Um, and he's been a little bit ill recently. And so they just reconnected and he went down, uh, or she went down to have a meal with them. And he started telling the story about hearing his mother cry because, mm -hmm. you know, not having food or being, um, struggling to make ends meet and hearing, uh, hearing her cry and not wanting to pass it on to his kids. And then she sort of had this moment and there's a moment in revising the storm where I talk about having heard her cry and making, you know, doing things that a mother 
doesn't want to hear that you're doing right trying to settle in hunger to 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 be okay with your hunger so that you're not putting more pressure on Mm -hmm. your mother struggling to make ends meet and realizing that if we try to be smarter than the boundaries with our traumas in terms of passing them on like that ironically like that's the shit that comes back to bite you the thing that you Mm -hmm. thought you were setting up against them like they're just so porous um our, our our problems and struggles and and traumas and so part of it was a faith that like i i couldn't wait i couldn't wait if, if only for my own neuroses which i'll own that um but then part two was i didn't know when to give him the book and so there's this beautiful thing that happened a couple weeks ago where i'm getting a little older and just tired uh <laughs> and so like often i'll fall asleep like right before dinner oh um so after I pick up Carlos, and part of it is like, I, I grew up in a big household. My mom had an in-home daycare. And something about people sort of like milling about, talking to each other, multiple conversations at once. So often if the TV is on and, some, and they're having conversation, two conversations will make me not have to read any one and I can, I can lights out. Mm-hmm. Uh, not deep, but like one of my favorite kinds of sleeps, which is like just yeah. under where I can still check in and hear this sort of music. And so I had fallen asleep. And then when I woke up, I woke up, I think my wife had come in quietly and turn off the TV, knowing that often that's what will, then now there's one conversation and I'll start to listen more, more, more carefully. And he was reading from the book. Um, he'll be eight this summer. And he was, he was reading from the book. And, and I had this moment where I realized only in that moment that I didn't, I, I wasn't prepared for when to give it to him. And, uh, It was such like a kind of grace to take that out of my hands because yeah. I mean it was a, it, I felt like it was something I had to choose mm. and my son is like this sometimes I mean this motherfucker has vision <laughs> um, well wait he, well he will he will bridge gaps that I'm I one like I'm thinking this is you know a 12 foot jump and I don't know if I can do it and he's like one it's a chasm and two like I got you <laughs> and in moments like this without even knowing and he's mm-hmm. like this book is bad um, so and he came and then he read it to me and there was one poem he got to and I'll probably read from this poem tonight at our at our reading but um, he read the title and it's like for the child's mole poem in there and he knows about the, where the mole is on, on, on his body and when he read the title he was like dad he was like so he was getting upset with me and I was like, no, no, like, read. why are you telling these people about my moles? Yeah, he, I was like, no, no, read it, read it. And he read it. And the whole point of the poem is, you know, I, I, I won't give this to the world because I may need this kind of intimacy to mm-hmm. vet how hard it will be to watch you or to experience seeing your mortality. If only through my own, my mm-hmm. own mortality or how far you go. And I have this secret and I want to keep this secret. And he, after he was like, okay, you know, uh, he was, he was relieved that I, at least with that poem had managed that sort of, um, inside outside, you know, putting his business out in the street sort of issue. <laughs> um, I mean, it'll be an ongoing conversation of trust, faith that, um, faith of what we're up against. And so often he'll ask about my father and I'll, and I'll tell him and he, he takes it hard. Um, yeah, he takes it hard. And so I, hopefully he, uh, he'll he read the risk of telling more of the story than we ought to up against. Like, I'm trying to make sure, like, I am not passing off this as much as I can. So I have to keep, I, hap, I, I keep having to hear your story and tell your story so I can hear that it's not this fucking story. Mm. Um, mm. Maybe. 
it's all prayer yeah i mean i think about that a lot too i've got three kids um and i i think a lot about how much to tell like there's a you have to trust Mm -hmm. right like you have to trust and that there will be an ongoing conversation yeah um which is a difficult thing especially you know maybe in the shadow of like not an ongoing conversation that you wish you had yeah um but i'm you know the thing that i struggle with and i'm curious about your thoughts on is like when is divulging too much right like when is it at what point like it's a tightrope walk right between yeah. like trusting and like creating a space for that conversation and then also like slipping into passing on some of the things yeah. that like you don't know yeah. you want to and the difference between writing and publishing mm. yeah, yeah i True. feel like we can't totally. yeah talk about yeah. this without talking about that yeah well even like i mean uh, more broadly than that when i finished so so that piece that i mentioned earlier um about being in vermont when that piece was done i was like shit maybe i'm done writing <laughs> like i went through some you know like maybe i'm just done now so giving myself permission to be done with poetry um wow. uh i mean I've, I've i've always been one who wants to hear that just to know that i can put down anything if i want to just so i know that i'm doing this because i want to not because you're caught up in not because you feel the sort of stream of it a machine of it mm-hmm. um but there is a poem in here that like i don't know and in fact like that was the one when i when i woke up uh when my wife and son were alone reading the book he started that and she was trying to push him along from this poem and and my son's stubborn i'm stubborn she's stubborn he's, <laughs> real, he's really stubborn and it was funny because he had this like you know when she turned away he was like where where was i kind of thing like and he happened to skip i think over the moment that she was trying to move him on from and so it's a poem about being a survivor of childhood sexual abuse and the ways in which that can push you at times in your life um or it, it can reappear that make you question you know, the, the safety of your hands and your voice. And especially having, having a son, it was the first time I changed his diaper and, and part of the poem. So, so the word penis is in the poem. And when I first showed the draft to my wife, she was like, she was uncomfortable. And I was like, I, I am too. I was like, but the poem, this, this poem needs to say that word and look there and hear no wrong in that sort of gaze and, you know, having those hands on my child, I have to hear that that experience isn't a part of this. And so the poem had to, I mean, because of what it was up against. So there are times in which I'm betting, um, how, how much, like, who is the book or which, which poems are for, I mean, they're all for him, but sometimes they have to, to, to be, uh, to me as his father for him. And so trying to distinguish between who the poem is to and who it's for, um, and that one was more to me to hear, you know, Jeffrey, you are not a product of this. This is not in your hands when you touch your boy. Yeah. And I don't know, he, he may read that one and be like, nah, and I have to, I'm going to get it wrong is also what I know. And I, that, that's probably the one that I'm the most, I will, we'll see. Yeah. yeah. And that's where the trust of the conversation will be there. Yeah. Like comes yeah. in, right? Like, yeah. you know, that you're probably going to fuck it up at some point. Yeah. Well, and a part of it, like what, like a little bit of faith that I have maybe is that I learned through a long process that for, so when I first started writing, my poems were against my father rubbing in the, his face and his failures, the facts of his shortcomings. And I was trying to find a prayer that would give me permission to put my father to rest while he was still alive. And it wasn't until I met poems or, and poets who were letting their fathers be broken and dangerous, but also like 
unlucky and graceful and beautiful um, that made me realize how how much I was striving for this prayer that wasn't going to serve me. And it wasn't until I said the word son and I heard my father's voice mm-hmm. and it wasn't a weapon. It wasn't an edge. And that I realized how lucky I was to meet poets to tell me, be careful the prayers and spells you put in your work. Are you really ready to put that down? Do you know the cost of putting these people to rest, especially when they're still here haunting you? Um, and so part of it was like vetting or trying to, to, to stay open. Like, who are you writing against and why? And are you sure you want to do that? And so um, I'm not writing against him or against my, my parenting, but, you know, four and two. And uh, sometimes a way, which maybe is just like a, a more sonically pleasing version of against. <laughs> <laughs> Survivor. My arms become two battered branches. The first time I reach toward the not yet wrinkled tenderness of my son's backside, bound to the pre-gnaw of a soiled diaper. L lies in our living room, postpartum and pitched inside the warm depth of her own recovery, body busy with soothing the glory of its new stitching. How many darknesses can turn a desire? How many good breaths to cast one wound from the sky? I open as if breaking until a sudden and enthusiastic and sunshiny geyser of urine from my son's penis startles me into the inane proverb of a laughter you never see coming. My hands still shake as I cinch the boy back into the thin cleanliness of another waiting. And yes, eventually I weep, but only after, and only outside, kneeling in the garden, well beyond the indivisible light of his future. Amen. In the book itself, um, you never mention your wife's name to the very end, and I'm curious about um, the the move to erase to protect i'm also curious about like what that means for you and if you can only protect people by erasing them yeah um so i don't think anybody is named in the book except for in my first book no no that's not true i think everybody if it's a name it's an initial Mm. and so i think that was a sort of choice to I mean, it's a, it's a thin choice to, to, to more protection, although I understand the erasure of it. And I think the importance of the initial was enough to, to, to have some middle ground between naming and not naming. Um, part of with, with L, like I love um, the initial L and the diversity of, of meanings, you know, like, cause when I read it, I think, I mean, I know it's my wife was that, but then it's also, mm-hmm. you know, love and light um, and so I, I love the like the um, the diversity of what L gets to mean for me, and then for for audience members too. Um, but I, but I think it is a sort of a, a, I can admit a thin ethics of protection because the initial is there and she's named in the back of the book. But also like Lisette wants to be named. Like she like someone asked me about this too. <laughs> someone asked me this too. Is like oh is your wife like don't name me in the Ignatius? She's like no nah, no. Nah. She's totally happy. Like put my name in there. I mean Let she's me got know. a great name. Uh, Lisette yeah, is a, a beautiful very name. beautiful name. Yeah. So um, 
And I think my family are similar like that too. Like they, they have a pride in, uh, in fact, like I had a bunch of cousins at a reading that I did here a couple of days ago and, and my, my mom and, uh, and my brother were there and, uh, you know, one of my cousins came up and said, thank you for trying to break a cycle of trauma in our family. And especially like as one of the men in our family leading that breaking, like so often it's the women who are trying to dismantle these things or interrupt these cycles. And she's like, thank you for being a role model for the young men, the next, the next generation, which was powerful. You know, like my family is kind of dope too, despite all they've been <laughs> through, you know, to, to say the thing that I don't even know I need to hear, you know? So I mean, that's where my son gets it from. Mm. So in this new book, Night Angler, you're employing a lot of new, like I would call them dialects that you're Mm -hmm. not employing in the first book Mm -hmm. Um, and what some might call high and low registers. And I would love to hear you talk about your approach to that and integrating that into this book, what that process was like, how you thought about it. So... I, th- I think about the range of the dialects in the book as being loyal to my household dialect. And I often say this to, to Lisette as a sort of um, praise of how when we're talking in any one conversation, there is a range of, like all my rhetorics are there. Um, but then also with my son, because, you know, I grew up first generation college, grew up, you know, below the poverty line. And he just has a different reality. And, you know, growing up in a college town, I mean, he's been on college campus more times the first years, eight years of his life than I did shit, the first 25. Uh, been on more planes than I had been before I was 30. And so uh, part of it, I mean, part of it is just me, but part of it is it's important that I don't, I don't narrow the idioms that I'm, fluent in but also because like he needs to be able to when we come back home and visit family i don't want there i don't want there to be any space in his ability to to sort of not not shift but like respond and recognize and honor idioms um so it's a but more like that happens more my sort of like intellectual thinking about it more so than the fluid like like when it happens you know um and so, like, I remember, for example, I don't know if this is a good story, so if it's not good. <laughs> I love it already. It. Um, <laughs> but I remember one time when, when, when he was, he was, I mean, he couldn't have been more than two. He's been, he was between two and three. And he was, like, in a way, and I was like, son, you got to pull it the fuck together. And, and he was like, okay, dad. I was like, oh, shit, that works. <laughs> you know, done. I'm not, you know, I'm not picking and choosing. And so like, I just am where I am with him and it's whatever gets me to the thought that I need to finish. Like that's, and, and not trying to be like, I'm putting this hat on. And so we have a very fluid, so, so my wife is Cuban American. Um, her parents came over from Cuba in the sixties. And so we just have a really, you know, and, uh, you know, passionate family. And so it's, we'll pulling from discourses all the time. Um, yeah and so anyway even like music wise right like it 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 warms my heart that when he's asking for songs to play he could ask for because he he plays drums and does school of rock he could ask something from his you know 90s rock play he could ask for beyonce he could ask for like you just never know he prints you know because we such an eclectic sort of music in our household that you know, I just trust he understands intention and meaning and tone. So tone's the only thing. In fact, like his language is a, 
again this is a story that uh, <laughs> so i remember uh maybe i'll tell two stories about it yeah. so um one of my favorites uh was so so we don't ask him to watch his language and maybe this is also about being a survivor is i never want language to be something uh that can be used to m- make him feel like he has less power or less voice so it's, i think a part of it is always yoked to that but uh, so he, you know, we don't ask him to watch his mouth in terms of the words. It's all, it's like, son, watch, watch your tone. tone. Your tone mm-hmm. is wrong. Um, and, but he doesn't, I mean, sometimes when he's frustrated playing video games, so I'm like, all right, come <laughs> Not every word should be. Um, and he swears he knows, like, I'm like, son, you know, you can't go to school and be yeah. cursing like this. You know, he's oh, no, I know, I know. He swears he knows. And so far there's only been one time where <laughs> I went to pick up. him up from daycare and the daycare teacher was like, just so you know, your son taught our class the word bullshit. <laughs> Like, I'm so sorry, you know. Oh, I'm amazing. so sorry. And she's like, no, no, it was cool. Like uh, teaching moment. She could get so so he was he he was able at this daycare to get the kids to kind of gather around and do circle time. And one day they weren't cooperating. He was like, this is bullshit out loud. And there's ah! there's this young girl in the class who English was like her fifth language, and she was oh. like, bullshit. And he was like, yeah, when I'm trying to do circle time and you don't listen, that's bullshit. <laughs> And she was like, you know, That's he was good. right, you know. I mean, and so that makes right? me so happy. Yeah. But um, that makes me so happy. But 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 actually, like my, my my favorite moment was once where um there was a spider that was dead in our floor, and um he saw it and he was like, we should just we should just give it a chance, Dad. And I was like, all right, we'll just give it a chance. And you know, a day or two goes by, and one morning he was like, I, Dad, I don't think the spider is gonna you know make it. I was like, what do, what do you think we should do? So like, we should take it and put it outside. So I got a tissue and I went to kind of like grab it up. And when I pulled and he was sort of in front of me kneeling down and I was reaching over his shoulder. And when I grabbed um, the spider and this Kleenex, when I pulled my hand away, there were pieces and he wasn't expecting it. And he was like, oh, shit. And it was the most Aww. beautiful, perfect like expression of like w- the horror of what he wasn't experiencing. It was a whisper. And I was like. I had this strange pride, but then like, I don't want to make a big deal of it too. It's not like, cause I remember growing up and people being like, you know, some adults, usually the drunk uncle being like, say the F word, teaching you curse words. And then your parents being like, don't say that. And then you get a thrill and it's powerful. And then now you're just mm-hmm. saying it. And that's not the kind of comfort I want. I want him to yeah. be, I want him to understand the meaning of words. And there are some words where it's like the B word, for example, I'm like, that don't belong in your mouth. It's not a mm-hmm. word that you own. It's not a word that I think you understand. It doesn't belong in your mouth. Mm-hmm. Um, and because my wife is um, uh, Latina and white and he, my son reads as white, um, the N word is another word where I've been like, I don't yeah. think you understand the power of that word and the potential is word. Like you, you, you are part of me. And so you have black identity, but like, I don't think you know what that word means. And so you have to, you have to wait until you really understand what that word means. Um, so it's about power of words and words as spells and being careful and that like, it matters. It matters every fucking time. And you can't be casual with the meaning of your words. Mm. Yeah. I've been uh, sort of on my own code switching mm. obsession mm. Uh, and thinking through the ways in which like, in, in which like language is a way of connecting and like sort of what what selves you have to leave behind to be in the room that you're moving into yeah um and so thinking too i just recently read <laughs> they know i read this essay about uh 
performance as confession or confession as performance and how, and, and like I'm thinking sort of separately about like identity and performance Mm -hmm. um, and how like languages, how language threads those things. Um, And so when you are code switching sort of as a way of performance, as a way of confessing and connecting, Mm. uh, I'm curious if there's anything in the performance, especially when you put it in a book, you know, in the way that you have, you know, yeah. sort of isolating it in certain moments. If there is something like, like, what are you scared of? <laughs> like, is there I'm something scared. really scary yeah. in the performance of it? So, so I want to separate the code switching a little bit from what I'm about to say. Mm-hmm. Um, but like the violence in my voice, um, it's, I, don't, I mean, it has everything to do with language, but not with a certain kind of language is what I want to separate mm-hmm. from a certain, like that certain idioms are violent and certain or certain dialects are violent. Mm-hmm. Um, but because of the history of who was doing the violence in my family, that, that, that tends to be the place, um, where a certain voice will rear up, but no, that's not even true. Cause there's a, cause, or it's not fully true. There's a poem in here that's about, uh, so what I mean when I say harmony and there's a line in there and it's my mom's voice. I remember her like, and if I ever like that sort of that phrase of what you do next, be careful, mm-hmm. you know, like you have, a, this is the moment I'm testing. I'm telling you that if you test me, there's violence on the, on the end of your choice. Um, and so that poem, it's one of the most uncomfortable poems for me. Cause I'm like admitting again, not trying to be smarter than the trauma I have to not, not think that I can just clean break from my ability to, you know, we all have tempers. We all have, um, we all pick up things from our parents that we, until we enact them and our child's react, our children react to them. Then we're like, and then you, you have, how did I do that? Um, I swore I would never, right? right. You hear things come out of your mouth that you swore you would never yeah. say or do. Or even with loved ones, right? You don't have to even be kids. Like relate with relationships, you find yourself you're know, like that wasn't even my voice for a second, that, or that, those weren't my hands for a second. Um, and so, that's the thing that is the most uncomfortable for me to, but but most not most, but important to to hear too. Because I I've been talking a lot about exercising voice, and which implies it can be stronger, which implies mm-hmm. um, it can be altered and changed. Um, but then the more I think about exercising, I think about exorcising one's voice and hands. Like what yeah. are the notes that you want to take out of your voice? We're talking about this at um, uh, Brad Lofen at the Rainier Writings Workshop. And so far with the violence, the only way I know how to have a chance of exercising it or the ethics of chance has to do with like hearing it there. Mm-hmm. And so I have to have, I have, it has to be in there. So that was a poem I was like, you have to admit, because as you know, that you get, grumpy or you're slow and all of a sudden you you know all this effort to be gentle and patient and to buck legacies suddenly you know your shorthand what you reach for but 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 i remember once in particular so i was in the grocery store and carlos asked me he was like can i get these chips and i was like nah man you can't get these chips put them back and he turned to me and he was like stupid daddy and i looked at him (laughs) And I was like, and I swear for a moment, I had like angel and devil on my, and one of them was like, you know what to do? Whoop his ass right here. Right. Like in front of everyone. Right. Like one of those sort of like, I mean, the wave of literacy of what you do when that happens, the disrespect, your elders. Um, But then, but then this other wave, this other, and it was more a chant because that song was quiet in my voice. And it was like, like all you've done 
is so that you don't have to do this literacy. All you've done is so that you don't, and I, all I kept saying is like, all you've done is so that you don't have to give, you don't have to rely on this literacy. And I was chanting, and but then as soon as he said it, he saw my, he saw my mm. face and how far, you know, I was just, the, I've never had to hold on to the thinnest thread of my anger um, when it comes to my son. And, and I got home and I was trying to punish him and he was, he felt so bad already, you know, he mm. knew and I kept being like, I'm so dumb, you know, put my laundry away. And he was like, okay, daddy. And like, it just like, you know what I mean? I was like, no, I want you to be like bad. You know, he was like, since I was so dumb, do this. He's like, okay, dad, you know, like he had already, but the thing is like, what I'm, what, what I realize I'm trying to, um, to have a more nuanced literacy of that is like his read of my face was enough. Yeah. I didn't have to enforce and make sure that I didn't have to, um, I didn't have to employ that, that, that history of like, but I, it was, it was a resounding, like, you know, and it, I mean, coursing through my, mm-hmm. and I have that one, you know, thin song and maybe I was in a grocery store and didn't want to yeah. be on, on the news or anything, but <laughs> no, I'm just joking. But, um, yeah, so so the 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 violence that I don't hear there is the thing that I mm. I fear the most. Um, and when you move through literacies, I think it's the right way to catch that violence because you get you in these flat-footed war. That's that's the idiom of violence, and this is the idiom of mm. like nah. Sometimes you have to you have to code switch or be fluid in your language if you really want to catch the notes that you want mm. exercise from your voice. Kids are so smart. We forget how smart kids Mm -hmm. are, you know, like, and just so intuitive. Like they can see on your face. You don't have to Mm -hmm. do all these big actions often. Yeah. They're smart. Yeah. There's no, there's no ego there. It's just reacting to everything they see around them. It's like, oh, you're upset. And everyone says like, every, the thing that I've been thinking about a lot is like, everyone says like, kids will forget. Like they'll forget. Mm -hmm. Do they? Kids do not. Like they do not. Forming their long-term memory. Yeah. Uh, they're not and they're always shit. watching that's how they're learning is yeah. by immersion and watching Indeed. they're so observant uh, and even like these former lives i don't know if you if your kids do this will be like oh when i was in you know mom's uterus blah 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 i'm like or like <laughs> many lives ago yeah. i did this and it's like and the stuff he's saying is so eerily on point that you're like we're just gonna agree that you you came from this other i mean but again it's because of some moments let me be careful and walk back that irreverence because my son has uh as that that vermont poem <laughs> yeah so a lot of this conversation has been about understanding um knowledge permission um ignorance a little bit so i'm curious about um the word fool in your book um and then one poem of course but the, yeah. the prosish poem um, yeah. where each line or each stanza graph ends with fool stanza graph i, I like that i didn't quite I like it's that yeah grad school so <laughs> um shout out to grad shout school, to grad school. Hey. um and so i'm curious about where knowledge and ignorance kind of plays in your book um in particular two things we're talking about like family permission and you know ignorance and kind of unveiling traumas and like where does ignorance and knowledge like play a role in your book and in yeah. your poems yeah um so the sort of short thesis of what I think that poem was about in the experience of it. What's the title of the poem again? So the title is like a river and what I realized in that experience sort of afterwards digesting like what the book just happened to me, um, was without knowing, I think I had carved out understandably like the safe space 
to have made progress, which we get, I think, you know, as long as it's a part of process. But I think the beginning of the new work was intense, but it was an intense thesis that was something like, be careful of thinking that you get to be smarter than your trauma. You got traction on this word father and how it's been haunting you and hurting you. But now I'm going to take that confidence or that comfort away or that smart idea and make you very, very intensely aware that you still have work to do. And so there, there's a kind of irreverence in, and I remember like when I was going through that day, I kept trying to, I mean, that's kind of what the poem was about. So the sort of um, intensification appears I'm trying to like solve the intensity of this confrontation, this uh, reckoning with loneliness. And for every, you know, emotional, intellectual um, victimhood answer I have to like, all right, I hear you. And it's like, no, no, you don't hear me. You still think you're smarter than this. You don't get a, you don't get a pole out of this. You're going to, I have to tell you something careful. Cause like you're, you're asking the wrong question. Mm-hmm. Um, and similar to revising the storm, you know, like you're, you're, you're asking to put your father to rest. You, I don't think you want to do that. And having mm-hmm. poets that sort of challenge that voice, it was like, this is, it's like, you know, um, you're, you're asking because of the work you did with your father that you get in, not be lonely. Stop asking to not be lonely. You know, the answer mm-hmm. to this question, mm-hmm. right? Either it's yes, or you're going to do something right that jeopardizes your being here stop mm-hmm. stop asking for an answer to that question and so and and often i i talk about this with with my own um the writers i work with and with my own poems is what's the what's the right impossible question that your work needs to keep alive and understand like that's the right question not because you get to answer it but because it needs to live so that you mm-hmm. don't fall down on either side which is dangerous and so that poem that's why i sort of like that sort of fool like it was a brutal voice but it was like i i've since that experience i've never been more afraid but i've never been healthier mm. and that's the vermont mm-hmm. yeah something yeah. beautiful about that that rendering like you're asking the wrong question um to, to keep you from one recognizing it's the wrong question and then two being able to sit with that wrongness and being like okay well how can i step back and then maybe there isn't even a question maybe it's just a meditation on something i want to talk about and that's yeah. something beautiful i think and beauty in that in that wrongness and that in that, in that ignorance too yeah yeah what is the right impossible question oh <laughs> it's so good <laughs> What make a man? What kind of wound make a man set his favorite rooster loose on a dying hen? What make the man snap the neck of that twice broken bird before his child's eyes? What make him see the bad idea after the fact? What open him like a storm? What make a man refuse to ask forgiveness? What make him offer the soft, the sudden softness of his voice instead? What get the man loaded? What make him choose to carry the small brightness of his child's body through the cold sleeping city? No. What make a man decide to drift the roads anyway, so his child stay warm in the front seat? What make him park the car two blocks away? What arms filled and humming 
You are my sunshine. Each dark step of the way home. Thank you so much, Jeffrey. Thank you. Uh, I want to talk some more. <laughs> keep, I mean, say. I mean, yeah. Say. I, just, I just think it's interesting that this poem starts off so violently and then and it's so aggressively violent, right? But then it moves into this subtle violence and it's almost softness. Yeah. And the intimacy at the end is, is troubling. Yeah. Um, even you singing that, that little line, um, it's so haunting, yeah. um, which is kind of what this troubling, complicated intimacy is. It's a haunting. And I think that's, that against the idea of what makes a man is very compelling. Hmm. Um, and then it's the little, the little M dash, no M dash, and that, that being by itself, right? The kind of a, a response to this intimacy that you want to give, but you really can't give it because you know it's just so wrapped up into it. Yeah. Um, I think it's sad. It's sad yeah. in this way. Um, yeah. Hmm. That's, that's a beautiful reading of that poem. Oh, thank yeah. you. Thank you for the poem. Thank you. Thank you to Jeffrey for talking with us and drinking bourbon with us and being wonderfully beautiful. Thank you to you, our listeners, for sticking it out all this time. We do love you. We love you. Send us things on Twitter. If you like what you hear, don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Subscribe. And rate us five stars. Cinco. Which helps other folks looking for poetry podcasts to find us. We're here. We are here. Lastly, follow us on Twitter at Poet Salon Pod and send us on your questions, your thoughts, your favorite season, your favorite reality TV show. Oh, do people have those? I have one. And send them to the Poet Salon Pod at gmail.com. Holler. See soon. These hands gonna take on these streets. Gonna show you who's man's. Cause my crew mob steady. Feddy and spaghetti. Feddy and spaghetti. Feddy in the.